Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean O'Line Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to another beautiful episode of Black Arm of the Law, Black Again, Black Like I Never Left. Please welcome our guest today, Mr. Stuart Russell. Stuart Hill is from the uh, great city and state of Baltimore, Maryland. They have the best seafood. He said he's not a seafood eater, but you know, I can I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to hold it against them. But they have the best crabs on the planet. I mean, I will. I have shipped crabs and, 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 and other seafood Seafood of teas. <laughs> from uh, uh, from from there because it's you know I grew up down there with my grandmother and she used to get them. We just she used to sit there at the kitchen table and she would just let them you know put put down newspaper everywhere. You know she had me go to the store and get a little six pack of beer. A little old bay seasoning. A little old bay seasoning and we would just go to town until we had iodine poisoning. I mean it was just horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like you know these are the memories you can't throw away but uh well, yes, thank you for being here thank you for joining us uh tell us a little bit about how you got your start when i graduated from high school in 74 i had a a, a sense i wanted to be a police officer believe it or not uh I, i'm really interested in, in uniforms uh the uniform that a department wears was very important to me and as well as tradition and culture and when i was a kid i fell in love with the royal canadian mounted police uniform but i wasn't leaving my mother to go to canada so i had to figure out you know something local you wanted to be a mountie but, yeah mainly because of the uniform I love. I mean, if you're gonna look sharp and you're gonna be something, you gotta look. You know, you gotta look the part. And that uniform was just nothing like that I saw here in the United States. But uh, uh, reality had to had to surface, and uh, uh, I, I took an interest in the state police because of the statewide jurisdiction, and their uniforms were like oil in the uh, state. And uh, it was a different uniform. Uh, we had the big Stetson, the Western style dress Stetson, and. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the jack the blouse that had the uh, Sam Brown strap to go across and the, six, and the six inch thirty eight Mark Colts and uh, I'm telling you uh, they were something but but what actually opened the door for me was I was coming from my little part time summer job cutting grass in the the city's projects and at the end of the bus where I was getting off there was a placard over the wall all, all the transit buses had advertising placards. And it was a placard of the uh, Maryland State Police, and it said, be one of the best. But the thing that really attracted me, there was this black trooper in his dress uniform holding a mic, looking straight at the camera, saying, like, do you dare be one of the best? And I later found out that was a trooper named Brown. He just recently out it was an actor. It was just an actor. No, no, he he was real. No, in fact, uh, unfortunately... And he was a Marine, and uh, he suffered some health issues the last few years. He just mm-hmm. passed away uh, February the 12th this year. And uh, but he was an icon. And in Maryland, we didn't see many black uh, troopers. In fact, when I when I became a trooper in 77, there were 
about 25 of us throughout the entire state. So to see, uh, uh, you know, it didn't matter actually who was on the poster, but it, it was a, an extra incentive to see someone that looked like me on mm-hmm. this poster and, 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 you know, daring me to, to, to be one of the best. And I, I jumped off the bus and ran home. I remembered the telephone number, and I told my mother that uh, I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew what department I wanted to be with. And, of course, uh, she, she nearly passed out the uh, thought of me being a police officer, you know, with the danger and everything. But she soon learned that I was, uh, I was serious about it. And uh, I, uh, at the time that I actually applied, they were not hiring, and I was put on a wait list because I had people in front of me. So I had several friends of mine that I graduated from high school with that were Baltimore City cadets. And that's, a cadet is a, a uh, young man or woman between the ages of 17 and 19 who do clerical work in a police uniform, but they, they have no police powers and they have smaller badges. And so I had several friends of mine that said, come on, uh, uh, man, you don't want to be no trooper. You don't want to be any glorified uh, traffic writer. Come down here and be a real cop with us. And so I... Uh, Okay, well, you know, I could go down and get some valuable experience. And so when the time the state police, you know, another five years, they call for me, uh, I'll have uh, I'll be a better qualified candidate. Well, to my surprise, I was only uh, I graduated from their academy. Uh, I was only on the streets in eight months. I, I worked over near where Morgan University is, Northeast District. And the the trooper, uh, John Hubbard, who did my background for the state police, saw me on my foot post and told me I had been accepted. And that was only eight months after I graduated from the city academy. So I left one academy and went right to another academy. And uh, the, the unique thing about that is in the state police here in Maryland and, and a lot of state police academies across the, uh, the country, they are what they call residential academies. You live there just like a boot camp. And you get to go home on the weekends as long as you don't accumulate uh, 10 demerits or more. And uh, so uh, I went from one five-month academy, state police academy, six months. And so in, in a span of a year, I went to two academies, but it was what I wanted. It was my dream. And so there was without hesitation that I left the city to go join the state police. It's interesting. You know, uh, you, you, the interesting part about what you said is two things. Uh, one, I've, you know, I've, I've had many conversations, uh, law enforcement uh, like yourself, and what drove them or what was the journey or what made them want to, you know, join the force. Um, and this first time I've, I've heard this story, this, you know, a lot of times they're very similar, you know, but this is the first time I've heard that what the inspiration was. And I think what you said was very important that, you know, it was the image. It was this image, but it was an image that looked like you. And I'm constantly preaching this and talking about how important it is for us as blacks as African-Americans, as people of color, to think about the image that we are putting out there to this country and to the world, and let alone to the ones that we are trying to and should be hopefully inspiring so that they can aspire to the same level of greatness or believe that there is things that there are things that are possible, you know, to that that that, that you can achieve. And, and that's 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 very important. It's kind of like you got to see yourself. I tell people all the time. This is a true story about myself. One, Right. Uh, is that when I was coming up and, you know, people always ask me, how did you become an actor? Or what what made you want to become an actor and this, that and the other? Um, a lot of the times we didn't have. Like you said yourself, you don't have these positive images of black people on the screen or in advertisements or on, you know, whatever. It wasn't you you didn't see us a lot and you definitely didn't see us in these positive positions or in these. uh, You didn't see ads with us as doctors and lawyers and and, in these affluent type of uh, lifestyle or even careers. And so I never forget, though. 
And this is the power of, of, of just manifestation. And, and this is why I believe in vision boards as well. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who I thought well, she wasn't my girlfriend, she was my girlfriend to me, you know. She didn't know. But she had other ideas. <laughs> she didn't know, but she was mine. She was going to be mine. And, you know, back then there was this group called New Edition, you know, and, and it was a lot. They had these, you know, she, you know, just like for, you know, this other group called Menudo and all the Spanish girls were going crazy over this group, you know, and all the girls in my school were going crazy over New Edition. And she had a crush on this dude, man. And they, and, and, you know, one of the band members. And I remember buying a magazine. And of course they had like a spread in the magazine of all these guys. And I remember taking my scissors and cutting the heads off of all the dudes in the, in the picture and put my head. I put, so I put my head on each one of the group members, you know, in the magazine. So when she opened up the book, when she went back to her locker, she was going to find a, a magazine full of me in it, right? But it was really something about seeing me in the magazine, you know, me, my picture, me opening it up and seeing me as that person that also planted a seed in my head. Like, no, I can do this. I can see myself there, you know, and, and just growing up, seeing different positive images as well. So I, I, I get where you're coming from. And I think that's very important because a lot of the times, you know, people don't understand how powerful that is. Right. May I relate something to you that's very touching to me, even these many years later, when I graduated and I went to the Dev K Highway Barrack in Cecil County, uh, I lived in the city at that time in the Northeast section. And state troopers in Maryland have take home cars, so you could take your car home and you know drive it reasonably off duty and things of that nature. So uh, I stopped at a local shopping center, small small area, and back then they had records of seventy seven. Okay, <laughs> they still had records, and so I stopped at this record. Trust shop. me, I know, I know. Yeah. Right. Uh, Before they came back with albums. And, and so, you know, when you knew, uh, it's, it, well, I, I don't I can't speak for everybody, but I never wanted to take that uniform off. I mean, because I fought so hard to get it. And so I was very proud of it. Uh, so I went to this, this super uh, this uh, record store and, and, and I got what I needed. And I came out and as I was walking down the sidewalk to go back to my police car. Uh, this elderly gentleman he had to be in his 80s. And he, he was walking with a cane and, you know, he, he was kind of leaning over. And, you know, when you when you first come on the job and, you know, troopers are always very polite. You know, we're taught that in the academy. Everything is yes, sir. No, ma'am. And I saw this gentleman. He didn't see me. I said, good afternoon, sir. And he looked up at me and he kind of looked me up and down like he was expecting me. And for one quick second, he looked at me and he reached out and touched my arm and said, boy, I don't even know you, but I'm so proud of you because when I was your age, there was no such thing. And I stood there for a minute and I cupped his hand with mine and put my arm around him and thanked him. And he walked up. I just stood there and looked at him. Yeah. And it hit me like you representing something here, uh, son. OK, you got something special to a lot of people. That was an aha uh, moment. That's what I call the aha moments. And, you know, I always thought of it, but that brought it home for me to see this gentleman in another generation who just seeing me in that uniform meant something to him. And so from that moment on, it never escaped me the importance of what you just talked about, representing your image and who you are and what you're trying to be. Because mm -hmm. you never know who sees you and, and what kind of difference. I had a young man uh, who was like maybe seven or eight when I moved into the neighborhood. And he used to sit in my police car and turn the siren on. And, of course, the neighbors would come running out. And I was like, he did it. <laughs> and uh, the day that young man just got promoted to captain in the Maryland Transportation Authority police that, that handles the uh, bridges and the tunnels and the, uh, the third group marshal of Baltimore, Washington uh, International Airport, he's a captain. And it all started because this young man saw me. Uh, you know, as a, as a you know a, a young adult growing up next to him, uh, he tells me to this day, you know, that I inspired him to follow in my footsteps. That's you beautiful. just don't know how important 
how you carry yourself and what that means to other people. And see, that's how I sometimes, uh, actually, a lot of the times I like to measure success based on those kind of things, like how many people have, uh, you know, I positively affected, you know, how many lives have I affected or changed in some sort of way? You know, that was that's that's I love stories like that. I love hearing stories like that. Now, you've had a you've had a you've had a quite a colorful, uh, you know, reading your resume and your bio. You've had quite a colorful uh, a little journey. there. You know what I mean? And yes, sir. You went, on, you went on to be chief of police, you know, which is, you know, yes, I want to talk about some of these these things that you've done uh, that I find quite interesting, which I'm sure you got great stories. So I got to get it. I got to dive right into it. Now, in, in your yeah, yeah, in your resume, it said that there was one time you went undercover, right? You you, you to uh, um, find out what happened to a student. Yes, sir. Uh, in, in 1983, we had a young woman from Baltimore. They joined mm-hmm. uh, Charlton, and she was brutally murdered on the campus of Frostburg uh, University, State College back there, but university in the western part of Maryland, just uh, on a bordering West Virginia. And um, she was an African-American, and uh, uh, she left the party early in the morning hours, and uh, she went missing. Her roommate reported her missing, and the campus uh, students and the faculty did a little search party, and very unfortunately, they found that she had been brutally stabbed to death uh, multiple times and left in a blanket in an area called the Arboretum, which is like a wooded stream area of the college campus. And as a result of that, the uh, state police was called in and they did a major task force. But because, you know, you had these uh, these troopers coming in and they were all de- you know, like detectives and, you know, uh, a lot of the students weren't comfortable with them. So uh, someone got the idea that perhaps in order to uh, uh, you know, glean information. We needed to put somebody in there to pose as a student. Now, because in my unit, I just happened to be the youngest uh, member of that that unit, and so, uh, so they told so me. So basically, basically, what you're saying is y'all had 21 Jump Street before 21 Jump Street. That's what happened. Y'all, <laughs> y'all put 21. Okay, let's let's, let's yeah. get into. Yeah. So uh, for two and a half months, I went there. I was enrolled as a student, and uh, I uh, I had obviously had to. Uh, we had to get permission from the uh, the school faculty, and, and, and ironically, the the dean of admissions. I actually played football against him. He went to a school called Mervo, which was a vocational technical school, and I went to City College, which was a college prep. They were like in the same general area, and uh, uh, when I saw him, I, I said, "Isn't your name Bernie or Bernard?" And he said, "Yeah." Well, he actually went to school with my brother there at Mervo, and I went to City, but he and I played JV football against one another, and so he was, you know. There was that connection, so he was more than willing to cooperate. And actually, uh, before I got my own uh, house in the town, I, I was actually staying with he, he and his family in his apartment until I could get a house. But I had to go to classes and do things, and I kept having to duck the football coach because he couldn't understand why I didn't want to play for him. And, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm like, listen, listen, uh, I, I can't explain to you. And uh, so I actually developed an informant, and uh, we actually wound up doing a series of uh, wiretaps uh, for some of the suspects. But to this day, one of my few regrets of being on the state police was that we were na- never able to, to solve that case. It remains unsolved today mm. because back then in 83 – uh, college campuses were dabbling in this thing called Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, one of one of the investigators, uh, Sergeant Al Haranica, he all, he was thinking outside the box. He he looked at some of the items that were left at the crime scene and determined that they had a an occult type yeah. of uh, uh, character to them. So he reached out to a professor somewhere in San Francisco or California 
And she she identified the pictures uh, at that time as perhaps it was a cult called the uh, Santeria, uh, a cult group called Santeria. And she said those those uh, items that were left near her body remind her of that type of uh, cult activity. But as that kind of thing wasn't prevalent up in Western Maryland. OK, that's that's the, like role as you could get out that out that side of Maryland. That's that kind of case or that type of circumstance that just wasn't it didn't exist or no one knew anything about it so you know even though it was a, a, a valid theory we had to move on from it because we just couldn't put anything valid towards it uh we had suspects and like i said we did some wiretaps on their phones uh but they just uh, either didn't do it or you know they you know or they were smart enough to know that they were you know being listened to by the police so uh as much effort that we put into that and all the resources just one of those things that we just could not come up with the uh evidence to find out who did it did you did you ever come close or th- thought you may have been on the right track or? yeah yes yes that's why we did the uh, wiretap we did the wiretap on we planted some information on the two of the, the two of the three suspects and uh we we figured that if we put the word out that we had some some uh, forensic evidence that was linking us to the suspect that they would talk about it during, you know, the time they were off on a Sunday. But they was either smarter than we thought they were or they didn't do it because there was not even one mention during the time that we were listening to their phone conversations about anything involving that, you know, alleged uh, uh, forensic evidence that we, we said we found. How long was this investigation? Uh, it started, like I said, in uh, I want to say September or November of 83. And I was there personally two and a half months right? Uh, myself. Uh, so um, once, you know, I did what I had to do and I couldn't come up with anything concrete, the investigation went in another level. And um, again, by this time, all the evidence and, you know, DNA wasn't the technology that we could use at that time. So anything we it was kind of elementary, you know, back in 83, what we had scientifically that we have, you know, that we have now, which is extraordinary. And unfortunately, like I said, over the years, uh, we've had leads. Uh, it's still open case. Don't get the, uh, it's still a cold case. We have a unit, a state police uh, task force up in the western part of the state that still has it on its books. And every so often, you know, they'll get a call from somebody saying, yeah, well, you know, I heard that uh, so-and-so did this or he may be involved. And right. I'm certainly sure in your your experience being an actor studying for parts of everything, you know how it goes. You're mm-hmm. going to get a lot of uh possibilities and you run them down and unfortunately you know uh but but sometimes and i and i have a case like this where um when you least expect you get a lucky break uh somebody is dying the person who did it is dying they want to you know get their conscience clear or uh and i know in one particular case uh, we had a a, a three-year-old murder of a woman that was thrown uh, found in the water drowned and we didn't know if it was an accident or a murder well the person that they thought did it was not involved. The actual suspect was in jail in Florida on an unrelated charge, and that program featuring uh, her, her this woman's death was featured on Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack, who played Elliot Ness on The Untouchables. Yes. Yes. And he featured that show. Well, just our luck, the suspect who actually killed that woman was in jail, and he was watching it, you know, in the in the bullpen area while I was on television. He told uh, another inmate that he's actually the one that killed that woman, and told how he did it. And uh, so the 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 inmate that he had told became an informant for the police. The Florida authorities notified us. And, of course, I sent one of my investigators down there to uh, flew down uh, to follow up and get the investigation. And the guy, uh, I was afraid that he wasn't going to admit it to the police. So what he did was and this is this is so interesting. He um, he, he said, yeah, I'll talk to you. And, you know, yeah, you can go ahead and record it. But I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. 
So my investigator, Sergeant Mike White, told the guy that we know you were there because we found a warning issued by the Department of Natural Resources Police for your boat that was improperly moored. OK, now he's the, he started changing his tune then. And then they started talking to him and talking to him. And they said, listen, you need to come clean with this. What is God going to think of you and this, that, the other? And they actually got on their knees in the DNR investigator, the initial investigator, got on their knees and started praying with this guy on his conscience. He he admitted it. He admitted to him. He, but, but he took a different toll. He said, well, I had her on the boat. She was high on marijuana and she fell overboard. I tried to find her, but I must have run over a couple of times trying to find her in the water. But guess what? Second degree murder is second degree murder. All right. And uh, he actually uh, died in jail uh, once he got out. But he was convicted. We had to extradite him back to Florida. He was convicted here in Maryland on that woman's uh, death. And he served time for that. And uh, so, again, had it not been for the show airing and him being in that front of that television at that time, we would never known. And that case might still be unsolved today. So let me ask you this. What, uh, t- tell me about the time where you, I, I read something about you said you you were arrested. Well, I went to jail as a prisoner four different times and, and actually once in West Virginia as a prisoner uh, to uh, glean information from suspects wanted in homicide, uh, attempted uh, one to hire me to kill another police officer. Wait a uh, second. There was- You're moving too fast. Slow it down. <laughs> Back it up. Now tell it to me again. OK, I went, I went to jail four times as a prisoner and uh, we got intelligence that there was a uh, inmate who wanted to have an officer, the detective that got the confession from him. He wanted her murdered because he figured if she was not around for the hearing. Right. He, he, but but what he, his mistake was, was that in the preliminary hearing, she gave testimony, which would have been admissible under the circumstances, even if she had died of natural causes. But being a criminal, he didn't he didn't know that. He thought he was a jailhouse lawyer, but he didn't he didn't realize that. So he put word out in the street. He wanted someone to to whack this woman. Detect. <laughs> so because we have statewide jurisdiction and state police, uh, a lot of the local jurisdictions reach out to the state police, and that's something that that uh, the, the troopers in Maryland were doing at that time uh, before it became an issue. And I'll talk about that afterwards. But the, 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 uh, I went into the, uh, the detention center on July Fourth weekend, and it was hot as the devil. It was one of these old time jails, and they had this great big oscill- oscillating fan in the hallway. And I'm sweating like a pig and I'm laying on this steel cot that's attached to the wall waiting to get to the rec period so I can go meet this guy. And I'm sitting there and I'm taking a nap and I'm sweating profusely. And I open up and I got four roaches crawling across my naked uh, chest. I said, well, that was it for the naps. (laughs) There were were no more naps after that. Right. And uh, uh, so. uh, uh, So anyway, by the time I was able to get to the guy. He uh, he he backed out, and you have to you have to give people the room. You can't entrap them, and so if they back out. But what you do in those kind of instances, you give people what we call official notifications. You actually go to that individual and you confront them with your evidence, and you warn them that if anything would happen to this individual, you know you're gonna be first people we pick up, and then you go to the the intended victim, and you know you work with them, uh, provide them some sense of security until you know obviously the threat is no longer in existence. And uh, we've we've had to do that a couple times on these cases. But uh, uh, one one case in particular that I think you'll find very interesting was that uh, I was put inside a detention center in the western part of the state uh, because the local police department sheriff's office was investigating a murder. And they wanted me to get in between the cell between the two suspects and overhear their conversation. Now, I was told that the cells were like the bar kind. 
Okay, but when I got there, they weren't bars; they were cubicles, solid concrete cubicles. Right. Okay? Now, fortunately, they had a door where they slide your meals under and a window that the, the correction officer can look in there and see that you're still in there. And so I can actually hear the conversations. Now, now my my sergeant poses my attorney. I actually got put in there on an FBI warrant, uh, uh, unlawful flight warrant for murder. Uh, of course, it was, it was feigned, but uh, that, that was part of the deal to get me in. So um, I was supposed to have writing utensil uh, pads and uh uh, uh, pens and stuff so I could take notes while I was listening to this conversation. Well, the correctional officers at the detention center told me I couldn't have him. And I'm like, so now what am I going to write with, right? And so, and then I get to the cells and the cells aren't what they, what they were described. And I'm like, can this get any worse? Well, yeah, don't say that. Well, look, when I, when I, they started talking and they couldn't hear each other. So I was able to relay certain messaging that they were talking in some kind of slang and code, but I was able to figure it out what they were saying. So when I got my first uh, meal, which was, by the way, it was horrible. Anybody tell you jail food is good, they haven't been to jail, right? And uh, so they came in styrofoam cups. So what I was able to do was uh, they gave me a little care package with a you know, plastic comb, a recessed razor, you know, things that, uh, you, uh, that you could take, take to yourself. So what I had to do was take the styrofoam cups, take that comb, and actually right on the outside of those styrofoam cups and plates, the notes and abbreviation right. of what they were saying. So they and asked you to be involved. They involved you. Yeah. And so, 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 you know, people say, well, that was pretty ingenious. I, I have no idea other than just panic why I, I, I decided to go do it that way because I couldn't retain everything. I didn't want to lose any pertinent information that they were talking. So I would retain some and things that were kind of a little complicated I actually and scribbled. Uh, 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 scribbled, excuse me, uh, on the uh, styrofoam cups and plates, what they were talking about. Now, nobody could know what I was doing, so I had to, like, tear the cup and flatten it down and stick it inside my underwear so nobody knew what I was doing until my uh, detective sergeant came and, you know, interviewed me as a, uh, like, you know, like he was my attorney, and I would read off these cups. You gave him sweaty... Style, no, 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 no. I, read, I couldn't get them to him. I had to read them. I had to read <laughs> off of them. Yeah. Stinky, stinky, sweaty, styrofoam uh, plates and cups. One other case, the, uh, the third case I worked where we had uh, uh, correctional officers smuggling in drugs from one of the inmates. And so when I got in there, uh, they put me in there again on a, on a fake warrant with the uh, cooperation of the state's attorney's office. And so when I got in there, my, my cellmate, he started pumping me for information. And, uh, you know, who, who are you and what do you know? And, and you have to, there's a fine line between being overconfident and being timid when you're in jail. Okay. You, you, you don't want to come off too tough, but you don't want to come off like, you know, you can be taken advantage of. So it's a fine line. But at some point I had to ask him, was he writing a book? Okay. Because I'm answering all your questions now. How many more questions do, you, do I need to answer here? You know, this is a quiz program. And so he backed off. Right, like, he yeah, actually introduced me. Date me? What's up? Yeah. So he actually introduced me to the guy, the, the, the inmate who had the drug operation going on inside the facility. And so when he, uh, 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 when I got enough information, all I had was verbal information. I had nothing tangible or physical evidence, but I had enough that I knew who his source on the outside was. And I found out who the correctional officer was who was smuggling the drugs in for him. When I was ready to be released, the inmate who was in charge of the, uh, you know, bringing the drugs in, he was a trustee, so he was trusted. He actually came to my cell, and I was getting ready to leave, in, the, in like in about four hours after I was processed, and he handed me a joint through my cell as a going-away present. Take that. 
Yeah. And I'm like, uh oh. So I'm thinking like, okay, does he know does he know I'm a, a trooper and trying to set me up? Uh, or, or what? Now, I didn't have a lot of time to waste, but, but guess what? Now I had tangible evidence because even with that one joint, I could charge him with possession with the intent to distribute under the circumstances, which is a felony versus a simple possession with all the other evidence that I uncovered. So now it was the summertime and they put me in there because we used to we could go out in the courtyard and play basketball. So I had on shorts and uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember those wigwam socks. They were like these wool socks that had the big color blocks. They came all the way up to your knee, and uh, this called Wigwam Socks. That's the name of the company. And uh, so uh, I had a pair of those on, short pants and a tank top. So I figured, like, okay, now what I, how am I going to get this out of here without blowing this case? So I decided because the, the, the joint was pliable, I took it and t- took my socks all the way up to my knee and then turned the socks over, uh, you know, over top of, uh, one, you know, over top of the, rec- the top part of the sock, turned it over and put the, the joint uh, in the back of my fold of my knee yeah. and flattened it down with the socks turned down. And when I was patted down, they, you know, I said, oh, they're going to find this and this is going to blow this case. And they made me take off my shoes, my uh, my shorts and everything. And they didn't find that joint. OK. And I was able to get out of there with that that critical piece of evidence and uh, uh, was able to, you know, go out and then prefer charges, uh, get warrants and stuff for that for the uh, for the suspect and the correction officer. That's a great story. I can I'm, I'm, I can see the visuals on all of that. Yeah, I was look, I was blessed. I, I I don't take any exceptional credit. I had good training troopers who who took an interest in my career uh, working undercover because uh, I was in uniform for six years and uh, I got transferred to this unit. And the reason that I wound up wanting to go into that particular field, that particular division, was because when I graduated from the academy, uh, there was a trooper by the name of Greg Pressburg. He's one of our fallen heroes. I met him right before we both went in the academy. And uh, uh, in December 17th, 1977, he died from being shot on a traffic stop. And um, myself and a number of other troopers headed down to the area where the suspect was located. And I saw these I saw these guys walking out with the suspect and they didn't look like troopers and they didn't look like detectives. They had, you know, beards and jeans and things like that. And I'm like, wow. Uh, I asked another trooper, I said, who are those guys? He said, well, that's our special investigative assistant unit. Right. I'm like, wow, you know, so I went to see them and uh, I sat outside their door. Right. You know, so they could trip over me when they came out <laughs> and they were very generous with their time. But they basically told me what I already knew that I had not enough experience to even be considered, you know, to put my name on any piece of paper. And uh, they said, just continue to do your job and uh, do it well, learn all you can. And who knows what happens? So that what happens happened six years later. And uh, and that's when I fell right into. So the the the, the other troopers in the in the unit, uh, guys like uh, Pete Edge and Donnie Newcomer and Larry Morris and Mark Snyder, Tommy Moore, Augie Stern, uh, Ted Polinski, they were all uh, 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 very essential uh, to me being successful because they had all done these things. And I was like their baby, you know, their baby trooper coming in and uh, they could see I wanted to really be good at what I was doing. And so, you know, nothing that I, I wanted to know, they would they were not there to help me with. And uh, so I owe them a, a great deal of thanks. Shout out to them. Shout out to them. Let me ask you something real quick. So I have to ask this because I asked this either at the end or, or at some point. But what was your favorite cop show growing up? The Untouchables. The Untouchables, I think. That's what I wanted. And look, that's that's it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to wear three piece suits and doors. Now, I do that now, uh, but just not as a as an investigator but uh 
Uh, but yeah, that and uh, there was a 50s TV show called The Highway Patrol starring Broderick Crawford. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you're, you've probably seen it in reruns, but the opening sequence starts whenever the laws of any state are broken, a duly authorized organization swings into action. Maybe called the state police, state troopers, militia, the rangers or the highway patrol. These are the stories of the men whose training, skill and courage help enforce and preserve our state laws. And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> that's for me. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but so there, there you go. There's the things that you see uh, that make an impression on you. And, uh, you know, I had a sense of being growing up and do it. My parents, my mom and folks, uh, family uh, raised me on both sides of the family. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make something of myself, but I also wanted to do it in such a fashion that I was helping something, helping somebody. Mm-hmm. And despite what people think about police, yeah, we're there to help you. But you got to help us as well. It can't be just a one way street. Right. And uh, uh, when I think back, a lot of the things that people in my field uh, working uh, covertly did that stuff. Nobody knows that stuff because it, it, you can't you can't you know, it's got to be confidential until years later. But I, like I can talk about it now. But but at the time it happens, uh, just like I said, that case with the Frostburg with the young lady that was uh, murdered. Uh, the NAACP was all over the state police because they thought we weren't doing anything. Well, we couldn't tell them, you know, to what lengths we were going through right. to try to find out who did this. You know, we right. just couldn't tell them. So we had to sit there and, you know, kind of be suffer in silence over being accused of, you know, if this was a white student, you know, you know y'all would have been all up here. And if it was a black student, you don't care. And, and you know, uh, I actually wound up having to take the young lady's possession back to her family uh, in North Baltimore. And it was one of the saddest moments for me personally, uh, because I couldn't tell them, you know, who I was and what I was doing. Uh, you know, and, and so I, I just had to, you know, tell them, I'm sorry, we're going to do everything we can. But they had no idea until years later because I, I was interviewed uh, by a local station up that way uh, at the anniversary, one of the anniversaries of her death. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. And uh, and I told them to this day, it still bothers me because a lot of those troopers had daughters that age. And so it bothered all of us that we could not bring that to a successful conclusion. So let me let me switch gears real quick, just for a moment. Mm-hmm. So one fascinating. I love the stories that you tell um, uh, and your different experiences. Uh, there were a few more that I really wanted to jump into. Please, but I want to. I want to switch gears for for just a moment. It sounds like, which is great to hear. I can hear it in your voice, and I can see you actually going back to those moments and those times when you when you were uh, going through these things, and I can see what that meant to you. And, and it seems as if, you know, first of all, you were dedicated and loved your job. And, and and this was definitely your calling and what was meant for you to do and be, you know, that's your purpose, right? Oh, and, but I want to ask, and I have to ask. So I remember talking to, you know, growing up with some of the athletes and things like that, people who have gone on to join the NBA and NFL, things like that, right? This was mm-hmm. their dream. They wanted to, do this. But once they once they got to that point, they realized there were certain things that they didn't realize. It wasn't all that was cracked up to be. You know, what I mean, they loved being that person like yourself. They loved playing the sport and everything about it. But the politics of it and the other stuff, there's other things that that you, I guess, can't see or foresee. And it's kind of almost like it was almost like a rude awakening to them. To where it almost, you know, to some of them, they just didn't want to do it anymore. It spoiled it for them. It ruined it for them because this had to be a part of it as well. 
Now, there's some obviously who learned how to deal with that and move through it, but some of those experiences were so dramatic to them that they just, you know, hung it up because they felt like they didn't enjoy it anymore. They couldn't enjoy it. So I guess I wanted to pose it to you that way to say what were, if not some or one of the different things that, you know, you found to be in conflict or, you know, that you didn't expect. And I guess one of them, obviously, you know, the elephant that's always in the room is, you know, did you ever experience any, you know, systemic racism? Did you ever ex- experience any type of pushback conflicts in that area? Yes, sir. I, 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 I get exactly what you mean. First of all, let me just uh, make a statement here that adversity comes in all forms, mm-hmm. whether it be racism, politics, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bad supervision, bad leadership. But you have to be within yourself because my, my motto to myself was as long as you don't put your hands on me, as long as I see those cars coming over the horizon when I call for backup, I'm not going anywhere. All right. This is my dream. And no one is taking it from me. Uh, I learned early on in my career that not to hold things that were done on the periphery by individuals as as the department's fault. I had to learn that early on because it, because if you're worrying about that, you can't keep your mind on the important things like watching people's movements in their cars and and when you're going on for a call for service or on a domestic and you're turning your back and you know whatever. So you gotta you you can't be inundated with stuff on the periphery. So you had to deal with it very decisively and move on so you could do your job and go home at night. Okay, this this ain't the NBA and this ain't NFL. And, you know, you're playing for life and the lives of, of not only the people you answer the calls for service for, but your fellow officers. So you have to be in the moment at the appropriate time. Now, everybody can't do that. I understand that. But it's it, it's about what is important to you. I always said that that something that 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 I love so much and wanted so badly had to be worth my loyalty and to to make it so that uh, uh, people knew. And, 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 and when you conduct yourself in that way, in that business, work it around very quickly that, OK, let, let's not let's not mess with this guy. He's about business. And, and also it's how you appear in your uniform, how you conduct yourself. All that is a part of, of, of your persona that says who you are, what you are and, you know, read the warning label, folks. And so perhaps, it, you know, I, I just had that makeup or it was perhaps that I wanted it so badly. But to, to, to answer your, call, your question more specifically, when I was in the academy, uh, when you're on probation in, in any organization, I, I can imagine, but certainly in the Maryland State Police, you could get fired for anything. They could mm-hmm. terminate you just like that and for nothing, okay, because you're not a, class, you're not a, a permanent employee. So when you're on probation, those are very important times for you uh, as, a, as a new trooper. So. I was in the academy, and uh, one of the things that we had to do is a five-mile run in 45 minutes in order to graduate. And uh, I was I was a sprint man in, in, in high school, the track team. I wasn't a long-distance runner, but uh, so anyway, so we took judo. We had a judo session, and I actually fell improperly, and I and I kind of you know uh, sprained my foot a little bit, uh, swollen. And the five-mile run was the next day, so I didn't want to miss it. So I went to the PT instructor and asked him, could I miss the morning calisthenics the next day because I wanted to rest my foot because we were running that five-mile run later on that afternoon the next day. So he granted it. So I'm standing over in 
in the morning, there's a new duty officer comes out. He's a corporal. And he sees me standing off to the side with the other people who had, you know, uh, documented reasons why they were uh, not participating in the calisthenics. So he walked over to me and says, what are you doing over here? Your name's not on the list. And I explained to him just what I just said. And he said, OK, we'll see about this. And I thought nothing of it because uh, I knew I was I was telling the truth. Well, we did the run. And that signified we only had a few more weeks left before we graduated. Well, he come, he pulled me out of the classroom during a uh, video session we were watching for accident reconstruction, and he had me go down to the office with the uh, the, the uh, troop, uh, the academy commander, captain, and uh, the lieutenant. And uh, he said he accused me of uh, making a false report, not only about that, but 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 feigning an injury. And they were going to fire me. And I had to say, excuse me, excuse me. And they said, what? I said, there's somebody in this room that needs to be here that can clear me. and He's not here. And they're like, who's that? I said, TFC Super, the, 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 the PT instructor who gave me permission to, uh, uh, to step side, step down for the day. So he came over. He confirmed my story. They told me, you're dismissed. No apologies. No nothing. Went back to the class. About 10 minutes later, here comes the same corporal. He has me pulled out the classroom again. And he says, I still think you're lying. And I'm going to give you 20 demerits, which meant I had to stay two weekends. I couldn't go home for two weeks. And he said, what are you going to do about it? I said, you got a pen, sir? And because you had to sign these little cards. So I, signed, I signed both of them. And to his dismay, because I thought he was, he was trying to engage me into being insubordinate. So he had another crack at me. And I looked at him and I said, sir. We just ran the five-mile run, which means we're almost out of here, and there's nothing you or anybody else going to do to get me kicked out of here. I'll take your weekends. But after I graduated, <laughs> I had to come back up and spend two weekends after I graduated. Now, I'm a trooper now. I come up and spend weekends. But, you know, once again, I said to myself, you know what? You, they didn't ask for you. You asked for them. And if this is the game that you have to play to stay in here, then so be it. I'm getting paid. But it did bother me because I said after all this conversation and classes and instructors telling you about integrity, fairness, you know, et cetera, this guy comes up here and does this to me simply because – and I couldn't, you know, say he was white and I couldn't – you know, I'm not going to just say it was a racial thing. It could have been a personality thing. But there were a couple of instances like that. And all through my career from trooper to lieutenant colonel – Someone was always challenging my integrity, and I live for my integrity. I have a saying, never compromise your integrity. And so I tell young troopers, even today that I mentor, when they get themselves in a little jackpot, I tell them, let me tell you something. I said, I always told you, and I'm going to tell you to you tired of hearing this, if you do what you're supposed to do and you be where you're supposed to be, even if you make a mistake, there's no need to lie about it. If you did what you were supposed to do, then admit to it. A lot of things you can avoid. Because if you have to ask yourself this question, if I do this, <laughs> is this going to get me fired? And if the answer is yes, then there's your answer. And, and so you have to grow up in the world that you selected, right, uh, sir. And you have to, you know, if you're going to be in law enforcement, as we can see today, you have to be about what you took that oath for. And too many people, you know, they, sir, uh, if you hire me, you give me, I get to wear that uniform, I give you my right arm, and you know, I'll, my first child be named after you, and then when they get it. They go in and the same thing that they promised to do, they don't do it anymore. And and so even at the lowest level, you have to be about leadership. You have to be about, you know, dedication to something. And, and, and you have to have pride in yourself. You know, how you how you depending on where you work, if you're in a city police versus a state police or you're a sheriff versus a uh, small town police officer, you, you may come out the house looking immaculate. And by the time you finish fighting five people and chasing people across you know neighborhoods and jumping fences, you look like a pig. But at least you come out looking professional. 
Right. And, and, and so, so again, I had to tell you honestly, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I mean, this is this is why we're troopers, kind of, in my opinion, and it's a humble one. We, you know, we stand up here, okay, because uh, we have a sense that's drummed into your mind when you're in academy that above all. You remember who you represent. You remember why you wanted to wear that uniform and what that tradition and culture. The state police in Maryland this year is 100 years old, and it was developed in 1921. And it wasn't until 1957 when a, a uh, black recruit, he was a paratrooper from uh, in Korea named Milton Taylor. Uh, he became the first uh, black to become a Maryland state trooper, and he passed away uh, about five years ago. He retired as a captain in 1982. And uh, uh, so... You know, we didn't have a lot to look to, so you had to be that for yourself in many cases. Well, unfortunately, the uniform doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Unfortunately. I'm just glad that it means what it meant to you. And I'm glad to, that you were able to, to serve and to serve us in the way that you've served us. So I just want to honor you and applaud you today for that. All well, right. I thank you for having a voice for People like me, because of one of your former guests, uh, George Green, he was one of my baby troopers before he went to the FBI. Yeah. And that story he was telling you about um, one morning, one cold, frigid morning when he was trying to qualify before he got the, uh, he couldn't qualify. Uh, the person he was talking about that got up on a Saturday morning and went out there, stood out there with frostsicles hanging all over my my rear end. Was was that was me? And look at that one moment did that support. Mm -hmm. He he not only qualified, he went on to become a sergeant state police. He left the state police, went to the FBI. He was like a a, a, a head of a special operations, some part of the FBI, and that was all because another trooper said, "Yes, you can do it. And I'm gonna support you with it. I can't pull that trigger, but I'm gonna be behind you." Listen, brother, listen, it's, it's evident. And if it's not, it, then whoever's listening can't hear. It is obviously evident that, you know, this, this was, like I said, this was your calling. This is what you were meant to do and how you've positively inf affected more than just uh, those around you in your community. But you've also inspired a whole nother generation and ushered and held the door open for another generation of officers that uh, uh, and law enforcement um young black men that feel the same way that you do. And that's, that's something to be uh, applauded and, and to be honored because we need more people like yourself in those positions. So uh, on that note, I just want to say, I thank you. I thank you for sharing your stories with us today. I thank you for sharing your journey. And this episode is dedicated to honoring those like you, uh, you. Who, who have served and who served us. And, 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 may, and may I compliment you for giving a voice, as I said, to to a situation like this where people can hear positive things about the police. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and despite it's, th these are extraordinary times we live in. Absolutely. And uh, it is not easy uh, to be a school teacher, much less a police officer. Mm -hmm. But but you still have to honor badge you chose to wear. And trust me, uh, there are thousands of men and women who do that very same thing. Today uh, was Fallen Heroes Day for the Maryland State Police up in uh, our headquarters in Baltimore County, Pikesville, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I was up there today honoring the 43 troopers who lost their lives in the line of duty for the state police over over the years. And, you know, I'm still touched by that because, you know, they made the supreme sacrifice, as I said. And but it's important that those families know that they will never be forgotten. And so when the families come up and, you know, they're out in the audience and then they get to walk a rose to our monument honoring those uh, fallen heroes. And then our helicopter, we, ha we have the, the greatest medevac un uh, division in the, in, the, in the country, you know, police flying helicopters. And our helicopter flies over the memorial in the courtyard where we hold the ceremony. 
And 50 some years later, that still chokes me up. <laughs> I can see it. When the helicopter flies I over. can see it. I saw you so, I saw you looking at it just now. I seen you. I seen you seeing it, brother. Like I said, I thank you. I thank you so much for your for your service, for your commitment and uh you know that you learned at an early age that God placed it on you and 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 gave you that vision to to walk in the light walk in your purpose so uh my congratulations to you on your career and thank you and please keep up the good work uh this is very much needed and you have my compliments sir thank you Stuart Russell Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.